standing at 70%. And that's the news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Janice Wong and your guest presenter is Mike Rouse. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Janice. On today's program, we're talking about the latest cryptocurrency scandal. Virtual asset exchange platform Halnax has been accused of defrauding more than 140 people out of around $150 million. According to the police, the scammers had lured victims in with promises of high returns on investments on its cryptocurrency exchange, but investors were unable to recoup the capital. Early this month, the Securities and Futures Commission flagged Halnax as a suspicious virtual asset trading platform and included it in an alert list. But some victims say the warning didn't come soon enough. The latest case comes just two months after alleged scams involving unlicensed crypto platform JPEGs were uncovered. So what do you think? Is enough being done to protect investors? How will the latest alleged scam affect investor confidence in crypto. After 9.45, we'll get reaction to New Zealand's decision to scrap its planned smoking ban to fund tax cuts. Let us know what you think. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266. Now to kick off our discussion this morning, we have in our Kowloon Tong studio, Joshua Chu, Risk Advisor at China Information Technology Development. Development Limited. And on the line, we have lawmaker Doreen Kong. Good morning, Mr. Chu. Yes, thank you for having us. And uh, good morning, Ms. Kong. Good morning. Thanks for joining us on the program. Um, let's start with you, Mr. Chu. Um, now, like I just uh, mentioned, this uh, latest cryptocurrency scandal comes uh, just two months after alleged scams related to JPEGs were uncovered. And uh, more arrests related to JPEGs have uh, recently been made. This uh, just doesn't seem to be sending a very good message about crypto, does it? Well, uh, I wouldn't say that because uh, if we look at the crypto markets globally speaking, uh, Bitcoin is at the one-year high today, uh, despite the fact that Binance, uh, former CEO, has pleaded guilty in the U.S. and stepped down as a result. Uh, we have seen uh, the crypto market getting to a point where it's so mature that it's not be, uh, the pricing, uh, the price is not being affected by a singular event per se. So what it does speak is that whether Hong Kong is catching up to the international standard and market fast enough, which is lagging behind. Because uh, the Binance saga, for example, have shown us that crypto assets is actually one of the most traceable assets because everything on the blockchain can be traced. And unlike cash, where you can, uh, once after a scam, you can disappear by cashing out and going to a casino, for example, you can't do that with virtual assets. All right. Ms. Kong, do you share Mr. Chu's uh, view? I mean, are you surprised that there's another cryptocurrency scandal happening so soon after JPEGs? Yes, actually, I am very disappointed to see that um, we have these two cases happened within such a short period of time. And as I mentioned, you know, uh, days before, I think we haven't done enough to regulate the online space, which includes, of course, include all these platforms. Uh, Doreen, good morning. Good morning. One of the key words in the introduction from Janice just now was another it's the latest cryptocurrency scandal. It's not. It's one of a long chain, isn't it? Yes, I think. Um, yes, you are right, Mike. 
I think this is, you know, the second time we've seen this two months. And I think for Hong Kong citizens, we won't accept these kind of things happened again within such a short period of time. And with SFC coming out saying that, oh, sorry, we can't do anything. Yeah, that, that seems to be a, a structural problem. But why is it that ordinary people are so... They hear this high returns, but they... It's always the same, isn't it? You're going to make a lot of money very quickly with small risk. Um, why do people still believe this? I think, you know, this kind of scammers, they are very good at, uh, first of all, reaching out the general public. They use all these kind of methods, you know, all these kind of advertisement, website, SMS, whatever. This is number one. They use all sorts of ways to reach out to the public. Secondly, is because they also, I think they, uh, they know about the philosophy. You know, we all have a kind, you know, certain degree of greed, right? Uh, yes. All right. Yeah. Um, Mr. Chu, I mean, looking at these two cases, uh, JPEX and Hounax, um, um, what would you say are the similarities and differences between these two uh, scandals? Well, uh, first of all, I, uh, I will have to have a dissenting point. We don't have a regulatory problem. We have a crime problem here in Hong Kong. Uh, what is a similarity uh, in these latest scam is that this actually goes much further because this is just the next evolution of telecom scams that we have been plagued with for the past eight years in Hong Kong. Uh, just that, and uh, what we have seen here is that the, how quickly these fake website, fake platforms can be deployed. So you can have all the laws you want criminals wouldn't care about it. And what we are seeing is that criminals are basically taking advantage of the latest emerging technology and the latest narrative to play with psychology because people people have grown numb to uh, telecom scams, even though it does still happen today. And it took the police, what, over seven years just to tackle all these scams and uh, call centers, and it's still an ongoing problem. In fact, the vast majority of uh, what we call wire fraud still occurs within the traditional banking space. So I definitely do not think it's a market issue. Rather, it's more of a crime issue because we are looking at a slumping economy and that's usually when you see more and more scams emerging. And the fact is, this is not a sophisticated crime. JPEGs, uh, Hownex, it's actually very simple. It's a, ba a traditional bait, uh, bait and switch scam where they give you, uh, they let you see what you really wanted to see, a fake uh, display saying you're making a lot of money, similar to an abalone scam. You see a huge abalone, right? But uh, behind the platform, behind, uh, underneath the table, they switch out everything uh, right in front of your eyes. So this is nothing new at all, just having a different skin to it. And what I'm surprised is that regulators or lawmakers are having trouble recognizing it for what it is. It's very traditional, and you simply need to deploy the right tools in order to tackle the problem. And the right tools include, for example, telecom scams. We finally, after what, seven years, uh, have uh, China Mobile and other telecoms telling people these are suspicious calls that you're getting. Uh, we're not seeing the same thing happening on ISPs. Uh, and we're definitely not seeing the same level of due diligence before uh, online platforms take on advertisers because they actually have the closest link to the criminals in question and they can actually establish an easy trace. But uh, of course, uh, law enforcement have to use time to gain experience and we're seeing a lot more law enforcement in other jurisdictions obviously having a lot more uh, as way ahead in terms of experience. Colonial Pipeline, for example, the FBI were able to 
recover all uh, all the ransom crypto that was involved. But we're not seeing the same level of reaction uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, probably because it's still a new thing for law enforcement to gain experience now, over. You mentioned the technology, and I think Doreen did too. And interesting, I was reading just today about people, AI, using AI to copy uh, voices of key opinion yeah. leaders or yes. famous advisors yeah. to lure people in, uh, thinking they've heard an advert from someone whose voice they trust. Precisely. And the cyberspace is so fast, you can't use traditional human efforts to patrol the Internet. Uh, what we have seen, and uh, because CITD is involved with assisting various organizations with predictive uh, artificial intelligence, we have actually had case precedents where AI is used to basically be a spotter. Uh, for example, customs have used a, uh, certain customs of certain jurisdictions have used AI to basically spot irregular traffic where the human elements would then move in to intercept and investigate. We need to use similar level of uh, predictive AI technology, for example, for regulators in Hong Kong to say this is a suspicious platform and put out the alerts out there. Again, I would say that uh, uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, people saying, uh, oh, the warnings came too late is retrospective because those, pe those same people don't even bother going onto the SFC website to look at the alert list. The question is, how do you turn that raw data into knowledge that people can act upon. And this element we still haven't seen yet. Now, predictive AI is beautiful because it has the ability to basically assist not just law enforcement with enforcing against crime, but preventing crime by sending the alerts out there. And that's what we need to see more of, uh, uh, detecting suspicious <coughs> websites, because you can buy these fake platforms off the shelf on the dark web now. If you look at Hownex, it was set up in less than three months. None of the data points actually extend beyond the three months period. It's not sophisticated. Anyone can do this. It's no different from ransomware. Ransomware has been around for 20 years now. We are still having that issue, but um, the same thing. Does, does crypto generally add to society, add something valuable to society? Well. No, uh, I, uh, well, it depends on what you say. We always, uh, from my perspective, uh, because I'm also involved in tokenization work, uh, just like the Hong Kong government, we say, uh, similar, and the Singaporean government for that matter, we say that blockchain technology have a lot of application. We say no to speculation, but uh, definitely there is a, a good application of how it can be used for real-world assets. But it's noticeable, to me it's noticeable, as an ordinary member of the public, who has no crypto, by the way. Um, where yeah. From time to time, I receive a blackmailing uh, call or a message, and they always ask for payment in crypto. Uh, that's all... Uh Again, the, uh, so we take a step back again from Hownex and look at Binance because Binance was caught AML saying hum, uh, they funded Hamas, for example. That's why th there's this huge drama. Uh, criminal elements globally, not locally. Uh, this Hownex is again very local, so a little bit behind time, actually, if you look at it. Uh, globally, criminal elements are waking up to the root fact that, oh, virtual assets are actually far more traceable because you can't liquidate it without people knowing it. Uh, and that is why that mature law enforcement are always able to trace and locate. But in Hong Kong, we are still at the starting point. All right, let's um, go back. Let's go back yeah. to, yes, yeah, yes, Ms. Kong, yeah, yes, yeah. your reaction. Yeah, yeah, I would like to add one point. Um, you know, as Mr. Chiu just said, 
um, you know, it seems that, of course, many people, they are very enthusiastic about the new technology, you know, this new kind of investment. But I think, you know, in Hong Kong, apparently, right now, we have a kind of disconnect between the development of all this, you know, investment and also the regulations. As we can see from these two cases, um, you know, when we think about why it is so easy, you know, for these scammers to take money from the public, and as if, you know, the, all the law enforcement agency or the regulators, they can do nothing. So right now, if you ask me, we need to do a few things to regulate, you know, the, you know, the present situation. Number one is I think the collaboration is not enough between, for example, the SFC, the police, all these telecommunications companies, um, the private businesses, private enterprises, and also the citizens. I think the, you know, all these stakeholders, we need to step up and work together more and in the quickest way. So as we see, you know, from other countries, let's say in Singapore or in Australia, actually all the parties, they work together to form a kind of collaborative efforts to fight against with all these scammers. Number two is we need to act quick. As Mr. Chiu just said, you know, they just maybe, um, you know, within a few months, they can get all the money. So I think we can set up better channels for the citizens to report the scams and also to check out the newest scammed models. So in, let's say in Singapore, they have a very good, easy to use website and also in Australia. So actually the citizens, they can know Okay, what is the latest scams, you know, the methods? And, and maybe perhaps in Hong Kong, we can think about whether we can hold some kind of weekly press conference to alert the public. Because in Hong Kong, we cannot actually uh, deny that a lot of the citizens, they are not computer literate, especially the elderly. Right. Number three is about the tools. Okay. As I think we all will um, share the view that we may not have the right tools, as Mr. Chiu just pointed out. We are using some kind of, you know, very backward tools to fight against, you know, all these scammers, which they are using, you know, um, of course, higher technology. So I think um, we need to think about, you know, uh, for example, in SFC, whether they are equipped with the best equipment to fight against these kind of scammers. And in, um, for law, okay, I must say, in Singapore, they are moving very forward. In Singapore in July, actually, the parliament, they passed the Online Criminal Harms Act 2023. And in this new, new piece of legislation, um, it empowers actually the um, law enforcement agents and the regulators to have the power, for example, to block access, to disable all these kind of platforms and also to restrict the account or even to remove all these suspicious apps. Um, and the last point I want to talk about is the advertisement, which actually I also read from today's the Singapore's newspaper about their, you know, their will to, uh, to regulate all this influenza, this kind of investment advertisement. So I really hope that our government, including all the regulators and law enforcement agencies, must work very hard to beef up all these kind of measures right. to try to stop all these scams. Well, you're on LegCo. Doreen, what, what are the members of LegCo doing about it? Um, of course, we are very concerned. And I will actually um, 
I will I will try to see whether we need to, um, you know, beef up on our existing legislation to see whether we we really need to do something, you know, to stop all these uh, platforms. Right now, if you ask me, I think we haven't used fully our existing weapons. For example, the telecommunications. We give license to all these telecommunications companies. And we should, you know, we should be able to ask them, for example, to identify and stop all these suspicious platforms. And it is not new. Worldwide, actually, in UK and in Australia, they are doing the same thing. It is not necessarily, you know, on legislation. I think we need to think, we need to check whether the existing weapons are good enough. And we need to try to use it fully. Okay, Joshua? Well, I've worked on uh, a number of these uh, crypto scam cases, and the interesting thing is uh, you can't legislate your way to your perfect world because uh, I've actually worked with law enforcement, and the police themselves uh, privately said uh, they're actually confused about the law because it's, uh, whenever you have a new law, they don't know how to apply it. And it might not be a fact of deficiency in law per se, but deficiency in whether they have the right tools and the right equipment in place. Now, I wouldn't go so far because Hong Kong needs to have a strike a fine balance between commercial and law enforcement, I wouldn't say we should offload all the uh, all, all, all the liabilities or burden onto the ISPs. Because like I said, uh, it needs to be a joint effort. Uh, that you can't expect, a, because there are costs when it comes to operating a business and ISPs are businesses. And what we have seen globally is actually more like regulators and law enforcement working with the ISP to identify the suspicious platforms and then the relevant alerts is sent out and how that is occurring however is that they use the right tools and like I said we do have the right tools already available for example our company CITD we have predictive AI it's just that you need to plug it into the right hands and then they can actually use to detect a lot of these crimes but then again, uh, it's uh, again uh, a lot of these things is uh, I would say it's not cry wolf, but people don't proactively check for scams until they have actually become a victim. And by that time, we always say it's too, too late, late uh, because uh, it's always uh, you always have to spend money to recover your assets, and it doesn't make sense to have a weekly press conference because <laughs> oh, the only people paying attention are the ones that have already suffered a loss. What you actually need is. Prevention, which is what we're finally seeing within telecom scam after a decade, nearly a decade. And that involves uh, a coordinated effort in identify uh, in setting up uh, artificial intelligence, for example, as a very good tool, identifying potentially suspicious platforms. Oh, how about an alternative philosophical position? A fool and his money are soon parted. It's a very old expression. Yes. Public education? Yes. Well, uh, look, uh, we have very high-profile people that are even LegCo member, and they're the silent victims, actually, whenever they fall for scams. Because they've because, got to keep quiet. It's yes, embarrassing. They, it's embarrassing to become a named plaintiff, right? And the courts, uh, the right to entertaining media is not uh, in, is inviolable, so they cannot sue under anonymity order either. Uh, and uh, what we have seen is that... Uh, 
uh, it's very painful actually for these people to and telecom scam. Uh, people are still falling for it today. We still hear police saying, "Oh, uh, fake uh, mainland police or customs uh, telecom scam." Uh, elderly are still falling into that trap. And unfortunately, what we are seeing actually is with COVID, a lot of people are exposed to the use of smartphones because we have something called Leave Home Safe app that we force a lot of people to use. But then again, is this older generation ready for to be exposed to the dangers of internet? And that is something we have to tackle. Yeah. I always call yeah. COVID the technology, uh, the, uh, the pandemic spur tech revolution. But then again, we don't have the right tools out there for these new generation of people that are now exposed to the internet. We can't go back in time, of course, uh, as to how to protect them adequately. And this is more of an issue of crime prevention than law enforcement. Of course, I still think law enforcement need to do have a lot more experience. For example, I have dealt with these cases, and there are actually very easy way to impose an AML, AML administrative freeze over tainted crypto assets. But when I approach the right, uh, because for example, USDT is issued by a centralized authority, and just like a bank, uh, the police have to actually issue a letter saying no consent for further transaction. And what is surprising is that we, as a private practice, because I'm also a private practice lawyer, uh, approached them first and they were like, oh yeah, uh, no one approached us at all about the JPEG scam or how next or anything. Because I don't think that we have the experience in Hong Kong yet to uh, impose those administrative right. freeze. Sorry, you sound like you wanted to come in on that. Are you agreeing with Joshua? Um, I think, you know, um, in Hong Kong, we need to design our, our own way. Because um, in Hong Kong, as you will, um, you know, notice, we have a lot of elderly and also, you know, other citizens who are not ready for this kind of revolution. I think the Hong Kong government, you know, may borrow, you know, um, some kind of concept from Singapore in this regard. For example, setting up some community centres particularly helping the citizens to, you know, for example, to get familiarized, you know, for use, to use this kind of smartphones. And also, I think um, the, I, I fully agree that the law enforcement agency have to do more and even much quicker. And right now, I think, you know, the best way is we can try to catch the suspect. We need to catch the suspect and not the murderer. Right now, you know, in the whole, you know, all these scams, we are, you know, we can, we are, we are just able, you know, to deal with the murderer and not the suspects. So I think that is not good enough. Right. And do you think, I mean, the SFC, I mean, in, in this Halnex case, it relied on a complaints from uh, investors. I mean, is that the best way? I mean, what else can they do to, uh, to, uh, like you said, uh, identify the suspects? Okay. I think um, first, they need to be quicker to identify and inform the public not just by the alert list. If you ask me, you know, just putting all these suspicious scammers on the alert list, apparently, you know, on honest case, is not good enough. That is, actually, I raised this point uh, in a meeting in October, actually back in Lechko. So, but I think, you know, they, they haven't got such a lesson. Um, in the, actually, securities and um, the futures ordinance, they have actually the duty to regulate the market. To, you know, uh, to protect the investors. And I think, you know, they are not doing a good job. And they should actually, um, you know, um, I think work better, collaborate with the police, I think, in a, you know, in a more close way. I think it seems that they, the two of them, they are not communicate enough. 
Are, are our police sophisticated enough and technology capable enough? I'm not sure. Well, we yeah, need to give I them think, the right tools. Yeah. Uh, like I said, we have to And teach them how to use them. And teach them how to use yeah. it. And uh, one more thing. I wouldn't say that it's all the burden should only be on the SFC. Uh, because uh, a lot of times, if you look at both JPEGs and Hownex, they use a lot of social media channels to distribute misinformation. Now, just like a defamation case, uh, when you know something is blatantly false, do advertisers themselves have the obligation to put out the right messages to Prior right. messages. All that right, Mr. Something. Chu, just hold your thought there for a moment. We're about to take a break for the news out. Let's continue our discussion afterwards when we will be joined by Evan Al Yang, Group President of Animoca Brands, a blockchain technology and investment company. And uh, Ms. Kong, thanks again for joining us on the program this morning. That's uh, Doreen Kong, is a lawmaker and solicitor. And uh, just a reminder that after 9.45, we'll get reaction to New Zealand's decision to scrap its planned smoking ban. Now, if you want to ask our guests questions or just share your views on today's topics, you can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266. And uh, here's a quick look at the weather, mainly cloudy with sunny intervals. The top temperature will be around 25 degrees, winds moderate to fresh easterlies. At the moment, the temperature reading at the observatory is 23 degrees, relative humidity, 70%. It's now 9.30. With a new summary, here's Haley Yip. Roundtable lawmaker Michael Tin is calling on the government to set up a fund to stabilize electricity prices, saying yesterday's announcement that electricity prices will fall next year was a matter of luck. Hong Kong Electric and CLP say from January, charges will fall by 16% on Hong Kong Island and 7.4% in the new territories in Kowloon. The power firms say the reductions are possible due to a drop in fuel prices. The Chinese university, with the help of four NGOs, is offering free health checks to 20,000 middle-aged people with the aim of preventing chronic disease such as diabetes and hypertension. Professor Samuel Wong, the director of the University School of Public Health, says many middle-aged may work long hours and may not be in the habit of getting regular checks. He said of the 6,700 people screened so far, 34% were considered at risk. And the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi has has praised the courage and patience of the 41 construction workers rescued from a collapsed Himalayan road tunnel after 17 days. Mr. Modi also hailed the bravery and determination of those involved in the massive operation to free them. I'll have more news for you at 10 o'clock. Improving district administration and reforming district councils matter to the well-being of us all and are essential to the good governance of Hong Kong. Candidates who are patriotic and have an affection for Hong Kong and the community, please strive to win the valuable votes from the voters. Voters, please cast your vote on December 10th. Pick your preferred candidate. Let's build a nice and harmonious community together. Cast your vote at DC election on December 10th for a better community. Antibiotics can only treat infections caused by bacteria. Patients with viral infections, such as colds and flu, cannot be treated with antibiotics. Antibiotics should be prescribed by doctors. Instructions and advice on prescription bags should always be followed. Misusing antibiotics can make bacteria resistant and harder to kill. Use antibiotics properly. Always consult a doctor. 
Welcome back. This is Back Chat on a Wednesday morning with Mike Rouse and me, Janice Wong. Still with us on the program is Joshua Chu, Risk Advisor at China Information Technology Development Limited. And joining us now is Evan Young, Group President of Animoca Brands, a blockchain technology and investment company. Good morning, Mr. Young. Good morning. Thanks for joining us on the program. Um, now, apart from the alleged uh, scams involving unlicensed uh, crypto platform JPEGs and the uh, latest crypto scandal involving Halnex, uh, we, we've also uh, heard about uh, Binance. Uh, its uh, CEO has pleaded guilty to money laundering charges and has stepped down. I mean, um, there have been lots of negative news about cryptocurrency exchanges. How do you think uh, this will affect the overall development of crypto? Well, we, we feel that, uh, well, it's two different matters, right? So Binance is, uh, is, is, uh, is actually a, uh, an exchange that is uh, unlicensed at this point, but they're seeking licenses, and it should be doing that. And uh, the charges by the SEC has a lot to do with sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, has it been, you know, doing any money transfers for sanctioned countries? And uh, any any sort of controls of money laundering, uh, any sort of um, uh, uh, sort of the assignment of U.S. citizens or license. So it's pretty specific to that particular domicile. And all exchanges should be uh, seeking licenses. That's the way it should be. Uh, we believe that with the settlement, it actually allows the industry to move on, and therefore it's positive overall. Uh, in terms of license exchanges, there are plenty, right? So there's Coinbase, for example, uh, in the U.S., which is uh, operating uh, in, within jurisdiction. And in Hong Kong, uh, it's, uh, uh, Hong Kong is going towards a regime of license exchanges. So overall, this is an industry that is obviously relatively new. Uh, and uh, Web3 and cryptocurrencies obviously are here to stay. But the licensing and regimes are, uh, uh, they got to take place, right? But I do want to talk about Honex. Honex is, uh, is not a, an exchange. And we have to differentiate, right? Because a fraud is a fraud and, uh, it can call itself whatever, right? Honex doesn't have a platform. It doesn't, there's no tra- actual transaction of cryptocurrencies. And uh, in fact, uh, I find it a bit troubling that the media calls it sort of like a crypto scam because it, it isn't. There's no, nothing has been taken place. It's basically a street scam, right? It could be equity, it could be real estate, it could even be dog food for that matter, right? But, you know, if there's a scam and people actually want to go in and not, you know, do proper due diligence and give people money for it and promises of, uh, of high returns, then that's a bit of a problem, right? And the SFC has come out and obviously it has uh, clarified that um, you know, there are, it's, it's, uh, it's listed within a suspicious, uh, within, you know, that, that, uh, that particular place, Honex, is the under suspicion, but it has no jurisdiction to close it. Now, there's a lot of media criticism around that, which, uh, which, uh, again, uh, it's not necessarily fair to SFC either, because, you know, again, this is not a crypto scam. It doesn't fall in within its jurisdiction. Um, the platform itself operates outside of Hong Kong. It does not have jurisdiction or oversight. Uh, on these matters, right? What the government ought to do uh, is to do more investor education, given that there's so many scams, right? I mean, every single day I'm receiving scams from somebody who's pretending to be from the immigration department or someone from the Chinese department. We hear these a lot. Uh, the education has the education has been stepped up by the government for this. There are more and more other scams as well. I've been added to, you know, different WhatsApp group, Telegram group about, you know, oh, very high returns from equity and all that. It's, it's not a crypto-specific thing. These are scams that are taking place in the age of information technology. 
And as Hong Kong actually needs to embrace and go into Web3 and innovation, there are certain exposures that uh, the, uh, the, the domicile is actually naturally exposed to. But it has to be very, very clear where the jurisdictions and regulations must regulate, meaning cryptocurrency exchanges, where it falls under SFC, and where it doesn't, where it falls under investor education. And I don't per currently believe that investor education necessarily SFC's job, but it's more of the whole of government that needs to actually do investor education. All right. I, I have this, uh, just just very quickly, I have this uh, comment from a listener, Elner, and uh, he says, uh, the recent crypto scandal involving Halnag serves as a stock reminder that investors need to take responsibility for their decisions and conduct a thorough research before investing. This incident highlights the need for enhanced education on proper investment practices and scam identification starting from schools. And uh, Mr. Al Young, you just mentioned uh, the need for investor education and uh, our listener here is suggesting that it should start from schools. Uh, what's your thought on that? Should it start that early? Yeah, I would agree because, you know, it's, it's a whole new different topic. I'll just comment very quickly. I mean, look, in our education curriculum, which we also, you know, any local brands also ought to work on education, we believe that the, the curriculum is outdated, right? So financial education is something that is not within curriculum. I, I believe, personally, believe that it should even be in primary schools, right? So, you know, that's one thing. But the other thing about the listener, which I agree with, is that self-responsibility is the number one thing, right? Because there, there, it doesn't have to be a, uh, any kind of scam like equity or real estate or crypto or whatever. Someone can just approach you on the street and say that, look, you know, you come with me, you know, you give me money and I'll give you, you know, you know the double the returns tomorrow. It's what you choose to believe. And there's no amount of regulation that investor education can prevent you from doing that. Before you part with your money, there's one thing about greed overall that we have to be very careful of. When there's something new and something's going very up high, people FOMO, right? You know, fear of missing out. And they then part with their money, and then more likely than not, you get scammed. So you have to do education, right, overall. Now, and this whole thing about uh, regarding Honex is that there are investors, right? Or actually, they're not even investors, they're not professional. They're just regular, you know, people on the street, like, you know, like any, any one of us. And they're angry about this, and they want to blame somebody. But frankly speaking, is the SFC really to blame about this? I, I would agree that, you know, maybe the SFC came out, you know, have said something that is a little bit too direct and, you know, maybe unpopular, say that, hey, you know, this is real beyond our jurisdiction. But frankly, it is. Technically, it really is. And if you were to reflect this more deeply as a society, you know, and also, um, uh, you know, given what happened, it's just really uh, the fault of the, uh, of the authorities, right? And, and one, one last thing that I do want to mention on this is that Hong Kong has really relaunched, right, with the government, with John Lee as the chief executive. Many of us in the business field and also many of us even as regular citizens are seeing there are a lot of changes right now, right? The government is trying to do a lot. You know, obviously coming off COVID, there's a lot we can, that we, we should do and can do. Um, but, you know, this is, if we're going back to this media cycle of blaming people for, you know, blaming authorities, blaming the government for things that we should be self-responsible for, then you gain back the government to a bad culture, right? And we compare ourselves to Singapore, right? We, they used to look up to us, right? Now the GDP per capita in Singapore is 50% higher than ours. Why? It's because they have a whole-of-government approach and they're willing to do things. We're heading towards that direction right now. And then, you know, we don't want to get back into this bad culture where we're blaming 
uh, the, the government for things that you know some of us should be responsible for. We should be encouraging the government for innovation. We should regulate where we regulate and have the response be very, very clear. And I personally want to see the government doing things that voter to develop a web-free industry, which frankly is very, very important for the rest of the world. This is the third iteration of the internet, right? And it really allows uh, you know citizens to have self-sovereign data rather than sort of giving up data to the likes of Google, you know, uh, Meta, you know, Facebook, et cetera, et cetera. It's a very, very big deal, right, leveraging blockchain technology. China's all over it, you know, not cryptocurrency, because China's all over blockchain. Hong Kong wants to get into it. We have an opportunity to have global leadership on this, so let's not shoot ourselves in the foot right now. Joshua, not, are we shooting ourselves in the foot? Are we moving too slowly? Well, uh... uh I generally agree with uh, what he said uh, uh, overall, but uh, I wouldn't say that education from primary school is the right thing, uh, because ultimately, um, one thing I can identify with primary school students is that we're both poor and have very little money, and they're not really the target. Now, if you start uh, educating in the school, you're leaving out a huge segment of the population that's beyond school, right? And that is that's actually the effective bracket at this time. Uh, what I would say is that it's not so much as public education, which is needed, but also law enforcement education as well, because we are seeing law enforcement officers having to struggle with how to effect freeze over relevant assets, because when it comes to money, they're very good at it because uh, there's plenty of scams uh, that is, uh, as we have said, dog food scam or uh, custom scam or even uh, mainland authority scam. They have been around for a decade. Uh, but for virtual assets, people started to panic. But in reality, it's no different. You just need to know how to issue the right paperwork and do it. And what I am seeing is that there is this knowledge gap between law enforcement right now and how to orchestrate the relevant free. Who's, who should be responsible for public education? I mean, I, I get these approaches through uh, Facebook and now LinkedIn as well. And, but you get to recognise the, the, the MO. I mean, I, was a, I came from law enforcement a long time ago. I, when I saw the same script being used for the fourth time, you know, a, a, a girl sending you a photo, which actually isn't her, it's probably a man, but you're getting a photograph of a pretty girl and she's in the oil industry in pipeline in Italy. You think, don't they ever change the script of these things? Well, you don't have to because people are not sophisticated enough. And ultimately, blame, playing the blame game is actually at the core of humanity. Just be in a marriage or go back to Adam and Eve. The first thing they do is know how to do the blaming. Uh, but at, at, at the same time, you're quite right. Uh, education is a double-edged sword as well. People think they are educated. For example, we are educated on, uh, on our rights to remain silent. But uh, I've, uh, as a lawyer, I've seen people uh, that are actually read out their rights, but they go, grow numb to the idea because they never think that they would be the one to screw up ultimately. So is just repeatedly blasting the same message going to help or is that going to numb them? Uh, victims will always fall victim. Then once they become victims, the question is how do we mitigate the situation? How do we help these people, right? And that is something that is actually a mixed bag. And that's why I say the right tools to tackle the right issue is critical. And what I think is we're not using enough of the right tools in place, such as artificial intelligence to detect fraud, to 
prefer, uh, to send out the warnings ahead of time. Uh, these are all tools that are readily available that's simply not being utilized at this point. All right. I have uh, some more comments from our listeners. And uh, Mike says, if you want to gamble, try Happy Valley on Wednesday nights or Sha Tin. Your chances are better. I guess uh, Mike here, he's uh, suggesting that cryptocurrency trading is uh, similar to gambling. Um, another listener, Ulna, uh, he commented earlier and he says uh, uh, that on a personal level, he's never had any confidence in cryptocurrency and he believes that it has primarily been associated with scams. Mr. Al Yang, uh, these are just some of uh, our listeners' views. Uh, they're not very positive about crypto. What sort of impact do you think uh, these uh, re uh, recent negative crypto news uh, will have on investor confidence or, or the confidence of the general public uh, in crypto? Well, I think obviously confidence uh, with these with scams and anything like that, it's, uh, it's, it will naturally affect confidence. But, uh, you know, again, education goes both ways, right? I mean, you know, when, when you know, equity investment, even invest, investing in stock, by the way, it's not even a popular thing in the Western countries. It's very popular in Hong Kong, other places, financial center. People also believe that there are scams, right? There are very low cap, you know, stocks and they can be manipulated and all that. But if you don't know something, they all appear to be scams, right? So if you look back into how, you know, cryptocurrencies actually got started in the first place, it's really about, about uh, the, the whole uh, aspect of a quantitative easing and printing of money of the most important reserve currency, which is the U.S. dollar. As you print more, we all know that what we hold is going to be worth less. And given that everything is relative to the U.S. dollar and everybody's printing, you know, what's happening to money? And that's how Bitcoin got created, right? And the, the rise, the meteoric rise of Bitcoin from almost nothing to right now, you know, 37,000 or whatever it is today, is not speculation. It's really about a creating a decentralized world where, you know, we trust ourselves. And how the government itself come together is to really talk about a group of people that want to, you know, do regulation that will come together and abide by certain rules. And given that governments, you know, in terms of monetary management and monetary system, basically it's not doing all it can do, given financial crises and all of that, we all know the deficiencies of how this, uh, our system is being managed today. There are people who are actually uh, creating these, uh, these matters to you know, create a store of value. And that, that's only Bitcoin. For Ethereum, there's a huge committee of developers that's actually de uh, developing applications. So, my um, uh, uh, you know my my stance here is very simple: is that don't just you know read things and then you know be emotional and then just you know um, shall we say make judgment. You know, investigate and understand more. And with AI, by the way, you know you can actually ask AI a lot of questions, have a uh, regular conversation about, hey, is this a scam? You know, what about this? What about that? And it's very easy to educate yourself nowadays. And I don't think it is actually fair to say that, oh, these are scams or these are not scams without actually understanding what it actually is. All right. And also, uh, Mr. Chu, I mean, earlier you mentioned uh, the use of AI to detect fraud. Can, can the, the use of AI be used to detect uh, crypto scams? Uh, absolutely. We have AI tools that are being used for market monitoring uh, as well as uh, suspicious activities. The question is uh, whether law enforcement are ready to embrace uh, these tools. But to basically go back to the viewers' uh, question about uh, the 
the negative sentiment. I think we should add that the negative sentiment is very local only in Hong Kong. As I have stressed at the very beginning of the show, Bitcoin price is at the one-year high, and we're looking at uh, essentially the crypto IPO because we're looking at ETFs being approved by the SEC in the US, and everyone is waiting for it. BlackRock and all these major funds are actually about to get into it. And Crypto has actually moved beyond a point where a single negative news is able to basically uh, crash the market price. And uh, right now, the, uh, and we need to also remember that crypto is actually something that's very global. And as we can see from the, uh, the diverse uh, opinions just today, uh, the education locally about this new economy is crucial because a lot of people are still struggling to wrap their heads around it. But then again, we see the same thing with equity investment, as rightly pointed out, because how many people actually understand the business or the company that they're buying into? A lot of these funds, what's scary is they are only pre, uh, making their purchases on technical analysis, which is a, a very one-dimensional way of thinking things. All right, uh, Mr. Chu, we'll have to leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us on the program this morning. That's uh, Joshua Chu, Risk Advisor at China Information Technology Development Limited. Many thanks also to Evan Yang, a group president of Animoca Brands, a blockchain technology and investment company. It's now 9.49 and in a moment we'll get reaction to New Zealand's decision to scrap its plant smoking ban. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. Hi, I'm Secretary for Housing, Winnie Ho. Happy birthday to RTHK's 95th anniversary. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88266 and have your say. New Zealand's new government has scrapped its uh, world-leading smoking ban to help pay for tax cuts. The anti-smoking law introduced last year banned the sale of tobacco to anyone born on or after the 1st of January 2009. To comment on this U-turn, we're now joined by Boyd Swinburne, co-chair of Health Coalition Aurora. He's also professor of population nutrition and global health at the University of Auckland. Good morning, or uh, should I say good afternoon, Professor Swinburne? Yeah, good morning to you. Thanks for joining us on the program. Um, so what's been the public's uh, reaction to the decision from where you are? Oh, just absolute outrage. I mean, everybody seems to be up in arms at the appalling uh, deal that was done behind closed doors between the ruling leading national party and two coalition members, one a right-wing libertarian group, one a populist group, and within the coalition agreement uh, was this deal to repeal these world-leading smoke-free laws, which the previous government um, had enacted. Um, they were really going to bring smoking in New Zealand right down to less than 5% within a couple of years. Um, so everybody's extremely disappointed. Right. So, so how big of an impact uh, will this have on uh, efforts to curb smoking? Well, it's going to have a huge effort because New Zealand's um, smoking rates have been coming down, but we have still have very high inequities and equalities here with Māori still smoking at around about 19%, um, but the average is now down, uh, average for the whole country is down about 8%. 
um, but it's that those uh, inequalities that we really wanted to see come down. And um, the national government uh, a decade or more ago set this goal of smoke-free 2025, which means less than 5%. And so now they've done this total U-turn and said they're going to pull the legislation which was going to get us to achieve that goal. One of the aspects of the introduction... Good morning, Professor. I, I don't understand how it's going to fund tax cuts. Well, there's lots of different ways of funding tax cuts, including, um, you know, taxing the rich, which quite a few people have been calling for. We don't have any capital gains tax. We don't have any wealth tax. We don't have any death duties. Um, there's plenty of taxes around to, to do that, and there's cost savings and things as well. But this is entirely cynical, and I think... This is just a post hoc excuse that's been thought up to say we needed to plug the, the tax gaps um, to be able to pull this legislation so that we have more smokers smoking and more kids get addicted um, so they can pay tax. That just is not the way a civilised country should be operating. Yeah, that seems rather cynical approach. Um, is, it, is it really going to be that bad? I mean, people have been smoking less I think, worldwide, because there's much better recognition now of the long-term health effect. Uh, well, that's true, but in New Zealand, so we have a population of 5 million, um, so we have 5,000 premature deaths um, every year due to smoking. Um, so that is, um, you know, 15 times our road toll. Uh, we worry about our road toll, we worry about individual deaths. This is 5,000 per year. That's not trivial, and uh, governments really should be acting with all the tools that they have available to be able to bring that down. And the fact that this government has kowtowed to um, tobacco industry interests, probably, that's what, that's what we're assuming is the only real reason for this, um, is, is, is just appalling. Well, there is a libertarian argument, isn't there, that the government shouldn't interfere with the free choice of individuals. Um, yes, that's true. But when you apply it to addictions, it's a very shallow argument. I mean, people who are addicted actually lose choice. They, the, if you've got um, a behaviour like smoking that 90-odd percent of people don't want to do, yet they're addicted to do it, um, that's not free choice. Right. That's, that's a constrained choice. And um, that the libertarian argument just doesn't hold water at all. I, got, I should confess, I'm an ex-smoker. <laughs> well, you probably know how hard it was to quit. <laughs> I do know. I, the only thing that moved me was my baby son coughing in his crib, and he didn't smoke oh, at all. <laughs> he was getting it all from me. All right. Well, that's right, and yeah. And uh, Professor Swinburne, of course, uh, you, you talked about uh, uh, how big of an impact this, will, this uh, decision will have uh, on efforts to curb smoking in New Zealand. Uh, what about uh, the decision's impact on international efforts to curb smoking? I mean, uh, New Zealand's uh, original announcement of a, a generational uh, smoking ban uh, it inspired many places to consider a similar ban. And uh, the UK even announced a smoking ban for young people of its own earlier. So uh, what sort of impact do you think it'll have on international efforts? Well, this has, will have a huge impact and we saw with the plain packaging that Australia brought in that as soon as that came in, then many countries um, copycatted it around the world and that really accelerated 
quitting in in multiple countries around the world. And the same was likely to be to happen with these laws. So the smoke-free generation, which you mentioned, is one part of it. But probably the most powerful part was the denicotinization of cigarettes. Um, so dropping the nicotine levels of cigarettes down to a very low level uh, means that the the addiction will will disappear. Now that will mean a lot of people will need to quit that um, the nicotine addiction through smoking. Um, there's the opportunity for vaping now, which gives them one another way of quitting. But um, I think that that if New Zealand have brought these laws in, we will have seen them very quickly taken up in many countries. Yeah, I think a lot of people around the world admired the previous administration for this innovative approach to sort of march smoking out of people's lives by uh, adjusting the age at which you could buy them. Um, do you think anyone else is ready to take up the, the leadership role? Well, um, this still hasn't come through to Parliament, so we, there's still a hope that they're going to um, not go through with this repeal. There's been an enormous amount of public pressure and really the excuses um, about black markets and, uh, and, and you know, needing to have money and all that uh, tax money and so on uh, just haven't been holding water. So they've come under a lot of pressure. Um, I think um, now that this has at least passed in New Zealand, there will be other countries looking um, to bring it in. But really, we hope that New Zealand would be able to show the way, just like Australia did with plain packaging. All right. And, of course, uh, your new prime minister, in response I mean, to this uh, decision, he he'd said, uh, Chris Luxon, he said uh, uh, smoking rates in New Zealand had already been on a decline. And uh, he reiterated that he remained committed to reducing tobacco use and uh, he will continue education programs and encourage people to take up vapes as a cessation tool. What's your response to um, his uh, planned action? Well, I think that education programs have been tried in many places for smoking and really they are hopelessly inadequate compared to these types of policies that uh, countries bring in. You know, putting up the price of, of cigarettes um, and the price in New Zealand is now very high um, and so the lifting of the prices has probably done most of the work that it's going to do. Um, Smoke-free environments um, have, have been really powerful as well. Lots of these uh, policies have really shifted it. It, has, it hasn't really been the education. Uh, quit lines have, have helped in supporting people through quitting, but um, you know I think that we need to look at what the most powerful policies are. And they say out of one side, yep, we're going to reduce smoking, but out of the other side, they say we're going to pull the laws that are most powerful for reducing smoking. So they can't have it both ways. All right. So, Professor Swinburne, unfortunately, we're out of time. Thanks again for joining us on the program. That's Boyd Swinburne, a co-chair of Health Coalition, Aotearoa, and Professor of Population Nutrition and Global Health at the University of Auckland. Many thanks uh, to you who commented or emailed us today and, of course, to our guest presenter, Mike Rouse, and our producer, Carol Mang. Danny Gittings and Paul Zimmerman will be back with another edition of Fact Chat tomorrow. <laughs> 